0: Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Lauren Valdis, Medical Director of Education here at SWARP. And today I have here joining with me Dr. Alex Chase, who's a Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellow and in about a month's time is going to be a full-fledged physician out on his own. Hey, Alex, how's it going?
1: Hi, Lauren. I'm doing great today. And we're here to talk to everybody about pediatric endotracheal intubation and some of the changes to the guidelines that have happened over the last couple of years.
0: Awesome. So you guys will remember that we talked a little bit about this at your 2021 MCME, and we're going to hit on a few other new pearls too.
1: Okay, so today we're going to talk about a couple of things. I think it's always helpful to kind of frame a bit of a background about why we care about this. So there's kind of a historical framework for why we've avoided cuffed tubes in pediatric intubations in the past and we're going to talk a little bit about that but most importantly we care about this right now because the guidelines have changed as have the equipment standards for the EMS personnel here in the London and Middlesex region. So we're going to kind of discuss the evidence behind why that's happened so you can kind of understand the changes that have been going on. We're going to discuss what they've found and then we're going to summarize everything and its relevance to you.
0: So Alex, can you tell us a little bit about why we're talking about endotracheal tubes in the context of the pediatric population versus the adult population? Aren't kids just small adults?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So a very common idea in medicine is that kids actually aren't just small adults. And so there are some sort of key anatomic and physiologic differences between the pediatric airway and the adult airway. And so... One of the places that this becomes quite relevant is in choosing what type of endotracheal tube to use. We have cuffed tubes that have an inflatable cuff that goes in below the vocal cords, and we have uncuffed tubes. And so historically, we've worried about using these cuffed tubes in the pediatric airway because of some of these differences. So with the child's airway, the actual narrowest spot is just below the vocal cords, and so there was some worry about putting too much pressure in that area and causing some kind of pressure-induced damage to the pediatric airway. There are also some sort of physiologic differences such as the sort of propensity to develop edema and then that can obviously have some concerns in the post exubation period and so primarily those, those worries about edema and those worries about pressure damage to that narrow part of the airway that's just below the cords are why we've stayed with uncuffed tubes but as you'll see some of the evidence around this has been changing and some that's manifested itself in changes to the recent guidelines.
0: Oh, that sounds good, Alex. So, can you tell us a little bit about the evidence then?
1: Absolutely. So, the primary piece of evidence that's informed the changing guidelines has been something called a Cochrane review. And for those who aren't aware, that's essentially a group of physicians and data scientists and statisticians look through all of the available evidence that's been published on a topic and review every paper and then kind of combine all of the data to draw conclusions from sort of the aggregate data of these things to give us recommendations based on the summary of the best available evidence. And what we like to do is look at these recommendations, but we also do like to look a little bit deeper and see what papers they're using to inform those changes. And so what we're going to do now is take a look at the three primary papers that were used by the Cochrane Collaboration to make their recommendations about changing to the use of cuffed tubes.
0: Awesome. So a deep dive into the evidence. Let's do it.
1: So just as we get started looking at the evidence, I think it's important to define a couple of terms. And so one of the things that we really look at is something called sequencing. And so this is how patients are assigned to one arm of the trial versus another arm of the trial. And using sort of a random number generator or some kind of randomization process is sort of the gold standard here. Another sort of massive point of comparison when thinking about the quality of studies is looking at whether the studies were blinded or not because we know that when studies aren't blinded there's potential for bias from the the people participating in it because they kind of have an idea or some preconceived notion about what they might expect. So we'll, we'll look at whether these studies actually concealed what arm of the study each of the patients was going into. And then we'll also look at kind of the completeness of data. So We talk about that in terms of the loss to follow-up, or the, the number of patients that entered the study but never completed the study, and where relevant, we'll talk about any other sources of bias as well. So looking at our first study here, this one's quite old. It was published in March of 1997, but the Cochrane Collaboration found it to be some of the better evidence that was out there, and so they did a deep dive into it, and what they found was... Its risk of bias was in the moderate category, so they found this because there was no proper random number generation for sequencing, so it's not clear exactly how patients were decided to go into the cuffed tube versus the uncuffed tube treatment arms. They also didn't conceal that allocation, so the people taking part in the study were privy to what arm of the study their patients were in. Sometimes it can be difficult to blind physicians, you know, the, the person doing the intubation is always going to know whether they're using a cuffed tube or an uncuffed <laughs> tube. Um, but we, we want to try and limit as much as we can. That said, they did have minimal loss to follow up. So almost everybody that entered the study was followed through to completion. They didn't have any changeover between the treatment arms and no other obvious sources of bias. So. For us, we would consider this to be a moderate risk of bias in this study.
0: And Alex, can you just let us know, why is crossover a concern when we're looking at methodology of studies?
1: Well, it can impact the results that are being measured for each of the patients. And so we often want people to stay in the treatment arm that they were initially put into so that we can interpret the outcomes for them and be satisfied that the differences between their outcomes and the outcomes of patients in another arm is due to the study intervention.
0: Gotcha. So we're saying here that a patient who is intubated with a cuff tube remained with a cuff tube the entire time during their their course of the outcome? Correct. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Thank you.
1: Okay. And so moving on, our next study here is a little bit newer. This one's from the 2000s and again comes in with what we would call a moderate risk of bias. They did some things better than the previous study, but then there are some other alternative sources of potential bias. And so that's why we've stayed in the moderate category here. So looking at the individual aspects. They did a good job with the randomization. They described using a computer-based random number generator to decide which treatment arm the, the patients would go into. Unfortunately, they didn't describe the blinding process, so we're, we're not clear on whether the outcome assessors, the people looking at the, the patient outcomes, knew which arm of the trial they were in, so hard to draw a conclusion there. As with the previous trial, very minimal loss to follow-up patients and no crossover. So everybody that entered this study stayed in the same treatment arm, so either with a cuffed tube or an uncuffed tube until completion, and very few patients withdrew consent from the trial partway through. All the outcomes were assessed as they stated, so there's no changing of what they wanted to look at partway through the trial or anything like that. So overall, quite a well-done study. The sort of complicating factor here is that this was funded by the Microcuff company and so we do always want to look at these potential conflicts of interest so this was a study looking at whether cuff tubes are better than uncuffed tubes and all of the funding for the trial came from a company that makes cuffed endotracheal tubes so no direct you know implications on the methodology that we can see but it's just something to keep in mind and our final study that we're going to look into is also from the 2000s this one's from July of 2010 and so again this one falls into kind of the mild to moderate risk category for potential bias they did a good job with the randomization again a computer based random number generator deciding which treatment arm the patients would go into minimal loss to follow up and no crossover again they they assessed all the outcomes that they said they were going to and published the data on that really the only questions we have about this is just stuff that they didn't describe to us. So they did not describe the process for concealing which arm of the trial the patients were going into, and they didn't describe a process for blinding any of the people who were assessing the outcomes. And so again, that just makes it a little bit hard to draw conclusions. We can't say that there was definitely a risk of bias here. But without that information, it's a bit hard to say that there definitely wasn't. And so again, falls into that kind of mild to moderate category because of that.
0: So Dr. Chase, based on these three studies, what is the overall take-home message?
1: So the Cochrane Collaboration gets together and then gives an overall grade based on the kind of aggregate quality of all of the studies. And the grade that they gave for this review is that the quality overall is low. And the way they define that is that further research is likely to have an important impact in our confidence about the effect of this intervention. That said, this was the best available evidence out there. And so while the jury may still be out in terms of a definitive answer here, we do need to make our decisions based on the best evidence that we have. And so that's what's been done here.
0: All right. And I think you're going to be taking us through then what they found. Is that right? That's correct. All right, let's do it.
1: So as we go through the different findings here, we're going to report point estimates for the relative risk and the confidence interval that's there. And so the point estimate is our best guess at the impact this had. And then the confidence interval that you'll see in brackets is the range where we're 95% confident that that true value lies in that range. So it can be a little bit confusing, but essentially if the confidence interval passes one or crosses over one, then it means we can't be sure beyond a 95% certainty that there was actually an effect here or a difference between the two arms.
0: So saying that, Alex, I'm just looking at this slide here. The confidence interval looks like it crosses one?
1: That's correct. And so they were looking here at post-extubation strider, so using that as a surrogate for there being sort of damage and edema and narrowing of the airway Mm -hmm. after we've taken the tube out and they found that they couldn't confidently say that there was a difference between the cuffed tubes and the uncuffed tubes and the proponents of cuffed tubes would probably consider this to be a win because the historical thought was that cuffed tubes would be more likely to cause this post-extubation strider and we're seeing here that they they can't say that
0: gotcha thank you
1: and so often we like to look not just at one way of measuring something, but at multiple ways of measuring something. So not only did they look at the presence of post excavation strider, they also looked at the presence of treatments for post excavation strider. because if you have a bit of strider but it doesn't need to be treated, the question would be, does that really matter? Right. So there's sort of three main treatments that you might need to do, and so that's some steroids to kind of limit that swelling and bring that swelling down, that's having to re-intubate the child, or that's having to admit them to the ICU for very intensive care. And so you can see with all three of these different potential treatments for post-extubation strider, there was again no difference between the cuffed and the uncuffed tubes. So looking at those confidence intervals, they all cross one, meaning that we we just can't confidently say that cuffed tubes cause this any more than uncuffed tubes do. Unfortunately, because the trials are so small, some of these confidence intervals are extremely wide, which generally means that the data is not quite as precise as we'd like it to be. And so that that again is part of why the Cochrane Collaboration came in with a low rating for the overall quality of the evidence here, but it is the best that we have right now.
0: Gotcha. That's great. Thank you very much for breaking down that statistical gymnastics there for us
1: and then our big finding that came out of this and this is the finding that really drove the change in the pals the pediatric advanced life support guidelines and that is looking at the rate of needing to do tube exchanges so a tube exchange is something that we would do if after the initial intubation we find that we're not able to effectively ventilate the patient sometimes we need to change the size of the tube and so we would take that tube out and put a new one back in and they found a statistically significantly lower rate of tube exchange with the cuffed tubes and again you can see here the confidence interval is both quite narrow meaning that the, the data is precise and it does not cross one so that gives us the confidence to say that this difference did not happen due to chance.
0: So Dr. Chase, this is really helping us understand sort of debunking this myth that I think a lot of people learned initially in school about that you could end up with some necrosis from the tube. Is there anything that we can do to help decrease this risk? Is there still a potential risk for that at all with cuff tubes?
1: Yeah, so I would say that the the best available evidence right now says that there is not an increased risk there. As we've discussed though, some of these trials are quite small and Cochrane did grade the evidence as low quality overall so while our best guess is that there is no harm here we don't have the same confidence in that that we might with higher quality trials and so i think in the interim it's best to keep in mind kind of the sort of physiologic plausibility of things and so with that in mind there's some recommendations about cuff pressure and so Looking back at kind of physiologic models, we see if we inflate the cuffs to greater than 30 centimeters of water, we can see some pressure induced complications. Fortunately, lower pressures are totally adequate in terms of providing enough of a seal to get adequate ventilation. And so we have recommendations to use cuff pressures between 20 and 25 centimeters of water to just limit that potential of any adverse events.
0: Gotcha. So don't blow it up all the way just until you've got a good seal. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Thanks so much, Dr. Chase.
1: So to summarize all of that, Cochrane has put out a uh, nice and concise recommendation for us, and that is that it's reasonable to choose cuffed and tubes over uncuffed tubes when intubating infants and children. And they base this off of the demonstrated safety, the better respiratory mechanics, the more reliable waveform capnography, and the lower rates of tube exchange. I've just included here at the bottom of the slide, again, the calculation that we use for choosing a tube size when we're intubating a pediatric patient. And so our equation for a cuffed tube is the age divided by four plus three and a half. You might notice this is just slightly different from the more classic equation that is age over four plus four, and that classic equation was in the context of uncuffed tubes. So. When you're using a cuffed tube it's just a bit bulkier passing the cords there and so we have to downsize by that half size
0: that's great thanks so much dr chase so dr chase you've given us a ton of great information regarding endotracheal tube intubation do you have any more airway pearls for us
1: yeah so um, the PALs guidelines also included a couple other airway and breathing updates and, and pearls of wisdom so we can review those here the first is that routine use of cricoid pressure is not recommended during intubation of pediatric patients and so you may remember cricoid pressure is previously thought to lower the rate of regurgitation of stomach contents when you're intubating somebody who may or may not have eaten recently but the evidence finds that there's no real improvement in rates of preventing that regurgitation and it does impact the view that the intubator is able to obtain which results in lower rates of first pass success so Because it tends to not bring any benefit, but does lower our rates of success, we've made the recommendation that we should not be routinely doing that anymore. And they've also made some recommendations about the rate of breathing once we have placed an advanced airway. So previously we targeted lower rates, but now the recommendation is that it's reasonable to target a rate of 20 to 30 breaths per minute. And so this is approximately a breath every two to three seconds and the basis for this was that some smaller studies have shown a mortality benefit and uh, an improvement in good neurologic outcome when this is done so you guys may remember that this was recently taught to you guys at the 2021 mcme based on the aha updates and so hopefully this will just serve as another plug to keep that increased respiratory rate in mind when you're ventilating a pediatric patient who has an advanced airway in place
0: that 's great, and Dr. Chase, sort of just to go over the difference because pediatric spans up to the age of eighteen. Do we use the new increased respiratory rate for some for all all comers in this age group, or is there a particular age cutoff that we 're talking about here for the pediatric population?
1: Very good question. Um, probably the easiest thing to do in the field is to use um, uh, a, not an age-based cutoff per se, but more of a visual cutoff because you know we don't always know the age of the patient when we're first picking them up and going through these emergency interventions, and so we use the age of puberty to be in line with the um, AHA guidelines. So if the, the child looks pre-pubertal, then we would use the pediatric guidelines in the 20 to 30 breaths per minute. But if the child looks post pubertal or more like an adult, then you can use the adult guidelines.
0: That's perfect. Thanks so much for that clarification.
1: And of course, again, this is all when we are dealing with an advanced airway that is correctly placed. And so one of the most important aspects of intubating a patient is confirming that we are actually in the trachea. And so we're going to spend our next slide or two talking about how to verify that placement.
0: So you'll recognize this here from your orotracheal intubation medical directive. So just within the clinical considerations, it reaffirms the confirmation of orotracheal intubation requiring at least three secondary methods if you do not have the primary method of confirmation, which is your waveform capnography. And the primary and secondary methods from your medical directive are listed here on the slide. All right. So Dr. Chase, uh, with its work for the past year, we've done a lot of um, teaching regarding waveform capnography. Maybe you can tell us a little bit um, about waveform capnography and intubation in this setting here for Pete's.
1: Absolutely. So essentially what we're doing with waveform capnography is we're measuring the expired carbon dioxide in the patient's breath. And so if we're in the trachea, we would expect to be having that carbon dioxide coming out directly and hitting that sensor and doing so repetitively. Unfortunately, there can be some pooled carbon dioxide that's left there. And so getting that initial amount of entitled CO2 doesn't necessarily mean we're in the right spot. And so we've included on this slide, a couple of different patterns that you might see on the capnography and then the physiologic states that might be associated with that. But I think the, the ultimate take home of, of this for the context of intubating in the field is that we're looking for kind of a full non-diminishing and tidal CO2 waveform for at least three to five breaths before we can be confident that we're in the right place. And we want to do that immediately after we've intubated a patient and after any significant patient movement, especially if there's any flexion or extension of the neck.
0: Pearl after pearl after pearl. This is great. Thanks so much, Dr. Chase.
1: And so just to bring everything together that we've talked about today, we've put this summary slide up for you. There are four main take homes that we want you guys to, to leave with. And that's that cuff tubes may now be used for pediatric endotracheal intubation based on the most available evidence. And this has been reflected in your equipment standards. So you will now be carrying cuff tubes in the pediatric sizes. The second is that routine use of the cricoid pressure is not recommended when intubating pediatric patients the third and potentially most important is that the endotracheal tube position needs to be immediately confirmed after intubation and then reconfirmed after every patient movement and the last is that once the patient has been intubated and it's confirmed that we're in the right place we can target that respiratory rate of 20 to 30 breaths per minute for any child who appears to be prepubertal in age
0: Thanks again, Dr. Chase, for coming in and giving such a a great detailed presentation on a super interesting and pertinent topic. Really appreciate you coming in today and chatting with us.
1: Not a problem. Happy to be here.
0: All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, My contact information is on this slide. Make sure to check out Swarp's social media for some more awesome educational tips and tricks. And there will also be a list of references on the page here for the webinar. Thanks, everybody. Everybody take care and stay safe.